Well, we're back again at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant with co-host Jim Thompson, speaking to Danny Fingeroff. Excited to continue our interview. And that was around 1982-ish, right? You started editing Spider-Man with Tom DeFalco, is that right? 1983. Early 83, okay. Yeah, I was working for Louise for a little over three years. I was editing some comics with her. I think, I don't remember, I think at that point I had handed off the British liaison work to somebody else. You know, a lot of these things, <laughs> this is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. In the early 83, you know, Tom had come on staff as an editor. He had been a freelance writer. And he come on staff as an editor. I think, again, Jim Shooter was modeling the Marvel editorial staff to a large degree on the DC editorial staff of, uh, of the 40s, 50s, 60s. So that, with separate uh, compartments. Separate departments, and even more so than DC it had, that if a character had more than one title, would have those titles supervised by one editor, which made total sense. I mean, and it's amazing it took so long, you know, for to do that. Marvel to figure that out. Because I remember there was a period there would be, say, if you had three Spider-Man books, you had Amazing, Spectacular, and Marvel Team-Up, there'd be three different editors working on those titles. And so it was hard to coordinate, even yeah. if they, everybody had the best of intentions. You just forget or things. Yeah, sure. So I think when Shooter brought Tom on as an editor... That was part of a process of creating groups or families of titles that would be under one editor for each one. So Tom became the editor of all the Spider-Man titles, and then he was promoted to be Jim's executive editor. Mm -hmm. And I was promoted from assistant to full editor on the Spider-Man books for the first phase. I had Spider-Man at two different periods. Right. And so you were kind of like the Mort Weisinger to Superman. You were that to Spider-Man, basically, in a way. I guess without some of the <laughs> without some, without no some spider more, dog, without some of Mort's well-known quirks that Mort had, yeah, yeah. So that right, exactly. So a I would supervise Spider-Man's main titles, but of course, being Spider-Man, like Wolverine or later the Punisher or whoever, people always wanted to guest star the character. Mm-hmm. So it was always a matter of they, in theory, would have to get my approval which couldn't be withheld unreasonably. You know, that was always a... Especially in the 90s during the big comic book glut. Yeah, X-Men and Spidey, yeah. There was always a question, you know, like, what's too much? Is having Wolverine in five books this month going to dilute the character, or does it not matter, or does it just... Right. These are ongoing philosophical... Questions, yeah. And sales questions that at different times had different answers. Mm Mm-hmm. So when you started editing Spider-Man, were you thinking, okay, so Tom did it this way, I'm going to do it like that for a while, then you transitioned into your own style, or did you just come in kind of with your own idea of how you were going to kind of run the character? Well, Tom had done a great job. You know, I think there are like a handful of people walking the planet who really understand who Spider-Man and Peter Parker are, and I think Tom is one of those people. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, he was, you know, plus all his books were on or ahead of schedule. Yeah, I was terrified you know luckily a lot i didn't even know that i didn't know you know so i yeah, I, mm-hmm. I just wanted to keep the books going and you know to say there's no such thing as walking into somebody else's editorial line and just keeping it going because a lot of what keeps it going is the chemistry between the editor and the creative personnel sure so once that chemistry changes, mm-hmm. everything else changes. You can go in saying, I'm not going to change anything, and it's 
you don't have a choice about it. Things change, you know, this, mm-hmm. because so much of editing is personal chemistry. You know, there are, as I've often said, so I'll say it again, I mean, there are people who think I'm the best editor they ever had, and there are people who think I'm the worst editor they ever had. Well, I'm mm. the same guy. So there's got to be something about the relationship between, between me, it's relative. Me, and, me and that creative team that makes one person think I'm great and another think that I'm horrible. So that comes into play. And so people, there's so many intangibles involved. So I think what I felt my responsibility was, was to the character. I mean, obviously it was Jim Shooter who was writing my Rays reviews, but my responsibility was to take my understanding of who Peter Parker was and what made him tick right. and what would be the best stories to make him relatable to the audience and who uh-huh. would be the best people to do that. Because when I came on, I think Team Up didn't have a regular writer. Every freelance writer and artist on a comic has their own career and their own agenda and their own family and their own idea of what's right and what's appropriate and what they will accept in terms of suggestion and supervision. And it's so much about chemistry, you know, that that I know it seemed like a simple question, like, what was your intention? And, you know, my intention was to make good comic books and to keep my job. Yeah, right, right. And hopefully those two things will require the same thing. (laughs) The same work, the amount of work, the same work. Was there a feeling like, okay, I want to update Peter Parker for this new audience? Or was it more like organic and just kind of putting out Peter Parker stories, because the context is probably different from the 60s and the 80s, right? Right, say in the early, mid-80s. I think even then, I think the bulk of people reading comics, especially Spider-Man, were kids, you know? Yeah. So I tried to say to myself, if I was 10 or 12 now, what would I be looking for in a story, and what would make me come back the next issue? Yeah. What was it that made me as a kid keep coming back? What was it that made me stop when I stopped? And how do I work with the creative teams to do that? And that required understanding a lot of things, who Peter Parker was, what a Marvel comic is, what a reader expects from a Marvel comic and from a Spider-Man comic. So there's all these things going through your mind. I didn't have a grand vision of I must impose my wonderful self on Spider-Man. You know, I just, I wanted to keep these comics going and keep them good and keep them selling. So was editing the Marvel Tales reprints with the classic 60s, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Spider-Man, did that serve as kind of a professional review of Spider-Man's personality, of Peter Parker's personality, to get into the Uh, more current stuff? That happened more for me in the British department when I was going through all those old comics with a fine-tooth comb and having to even split them up into chapters. But yeah, I think the Marvel Tales was partly that. I think I was looking to my template more to what Tom had done with Roger Stern and Bill Mantlo and John Romita Jr. and Al Miller. Okay. You know, look, I, look, everything that Marvel Comics does and ever will do is informed by the first 50 issues of Spider-Man and the first 100 issues of Fantastic Four. Those are the Bible and the template and the handbook and the guidebook. And even if you've never read those comics, I mean, you go to the movies and when the movies work, that's what they do. You know, so, yeah. so in that sense, I had that stuff imprinted in my DNA. And so I was always looking to that. But I was also aware that that stuff to most 
modern 12-year-olds would read as dated and square. Mm-hmm. You know, this was what Shooter and Grunewald and DeFalco were great at, was they reverse-engineered yeah. the great Marvel comics and the great DC comics and the great literature. They figured out what a good English teacher figures out or, or mm-hmm. a good literary critic or movie critic figures out is here's why we love this thing, you know, mm-hmm. here's what's appealing about this, you know, here's why Hamlet is still relevant and here's why Tom Sawyer is still relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, reverse engineered makes sense. You know, they reveal something, even if it's something minor, but they give you some insight into dare I say, the human condition. Yeah, right. So even the silliest you know, story gives you some insight. And then there's got to be a lot of cool hoo-ha action, as Tom would call it. And, I mean, obviously it's a superhero comic book, so there's got to be punching and hitting and, and action and adventure. But there's got to be... So what those guys were really good at and what I tried to take away from them, and I think I learned a lot and try to pass on when I teach or lecture, is... What makes these tick? What is it that underneath all the surface glitz makes people, you know, love Peter Parker, whether he's in the comic or whether he's in a cartoon or whether he's played by Tobey Maguire or mm. who's the kid playing him in the current movies? Tom Holland. Tom Holland. You know, I mean, I mean, here, here's the thing. You know, I noticed this in the first week I was in comics, right? Comics are superhero fantasies are at a certain level about might making right and you know and then achieving noble goals through violence and mm-hmm. and i know a lot of people don't like that as a message including a lot of my friends and people i've known my whole life and yet when i told them i was working in marvel comics or working on spider-man almost uniformly everyone oh that's really cool you know even though, spider-man doesn't come off like that spider-man seems to be always on the defense right Right, and people have a warm, fuzzy feeling about Marvel Comics in general. You know, even before the phenomenon of the movies and TV shows, even when it was a more esoteric kind of thing. I mean, it was just cool. Nobody really, most people just thought it was a cool thing and interesting and offbeat. And, you know, whereas, say, somebody might find, like, the Death Wish movies about a guy who goes out and shoots everybody. Right. That, yeah, that's clearly that, different. That, that, that's yeah. yeah, and yet the message in many ways is the same. You know, if you have the power to affect justice as you see yeah. it, then, to correct and, social things, then you're the hero. Or at least, how'd you feel, Ron Friends, when he did Spidey? Did you feel like he kind of summoned some of that Ditko vibe? And then, how do you feel he did on the character? Oh, Ron is Ron. I mean, Ron has a lot of influences that he displays proudly, but I think he synthesizes them into, you know, his own distinct vision and point of view and gestalt, dare I say. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, yeah, Ron is the greatest. Ron is the ultimate, you know, Marvel Comics artist in a really good way. You know, he's, yeah, for sure. You know, he gets the characters. He's a thinking artist. You know, very often, I mean, pretty much he, when he and Tom work together, they pretty much co-plot the stories, you know. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they talk out the characters. I can't say enough great things about him. Yeah, he's, he's good. So now tell us about writing the Howard the Duck movie adaptation comic. That was a pure money grab. I needed work. There was an assignment. I still have never seen the movie. Huh, uh, that's hilarious. Well, you know, you, Well, you know, you write these things. They give you a version of the script Uh and a lot of uh, production stills. 
And then there you go, you know? So, I mean, it was... Did you put your own take on Howard in there or bend it to the comics in any way? No, I just pretty much went by the screen. By the script and the pictures, okay. the first movie adaptation I'd ever... That you'd worked on, okay. I'd been involved with doing a lot of the research for the Xanadu Super Special, but that was more for the articles. Mm -hmm. You had done Dragon Slayer, too. I didn't write that. I was just... No, no, but I mean, you you, you got to edit your credit on that. So these things, you know, these are just... You know, I did some of the articles. From a, from a writing perspective, how did you feel about Howard the Duck as far as Steve Gerber's version versus Bill Mantlo's? How did you feel about those two versions? Or did you read them? Look, I guess there are people who say they should have stopped Spider-Man after Ditko left. You know? Yeah, right. Obviously, history has proven those people wrong. I do think maybe there was no point in doing Howard the Duck after Gerber left. Uh, I mean, you know, Bill was a professional, and he had a pretty good sense of humor. And I mean, those stories were fine. But there was something about that character and Steve Gerber and Gene Colan and Tom Palmer. You know, there was something about, and the time, the fact that it, when it came out, you know, uh-huh. that made it a special thing. And I don't think that's a particularly radical opinion. But yeah, but it's also... You know, I know that Steve did a couple of miniseries in the uh, 90s, I think, the mm-hmm. early 2000s that I did not right. read. Like Full Killer, uh, that, which is pretty good. Yeah, but I mean, I, th- I think he did like a Howard the Duck miniseries. Or two. It never right. worked again. I mean, I, don't, I think it was a zeitgeist thing, and it worked yeah. at the time that he first did it. Yeah, I mean, I, again, he was at whatever age he was. He lived in New York at the depth of New York's decay, and, and even Cleveland, where, you know, where Howard ended up was sort of at the nadir you know it was really a lot of what steve did reflected its times which was really this era when government and society almost seemed to have given up on america's cities and howard really voiced a lot of the angst and insanity of urban, urban life, life. Time, you know steve was living in times square at when times square was at its meanest you know and and, mm-hmm. and most depraved so yeah, so I think all that filtered through his consciousness. I worked with him years later on Cloak and Dagger, which I thought he did some brilliant work on. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. That was in the in the 90s. So now you edited the Marvel Saga books in 1986. Would you refer to Grunewald or Sanderson like saying, hey, you know, basically kind of getting reminded on continuity when you were working on that book? Tell us about that. And I actually grew up on Marvel Saga personally. I was... Uh, <laughs> I was in school reading Marvel Saga thinking, oh, my gosh, this has been going on all this time? My God. Yeah, well, Marvel Saga was interesting. I was a freelancer at the time, and I needed some work to do. I wasn't doing as much writing as I needed to do, so mm-hmm. took this on as a freelance editing job, and it sort of came with Peter Sanderson as the writer. That was part of the mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think we'd go to Grunewald or Shooter or, or even to, say, George Olszewski's guides or the Universe Handbook. It was funny. I I loved working on it. You know, it appealed to the scholar and historian in me to sort of put this stuff in chronological order. Nice. You know, I think in retrospect, or even I think I knew it at the time, this was the classic conflict between art and commerce. Mm-hmm. When Shooter gave me the assignment... I said, is this a mini-series or an ongoing series? And I fully thought he'd say, well, make it a 12-issue limited series. But he didn't. He said, it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter and I were both freelancers. So therefore, we're going to keep the thing going as long as we can. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. even though in both of our heart of hearts, I mean, you'd have to ask Peter, but I think we both thought, well, this would probably be better to have a finite beginning and end so we know that we have to fit all of Marvel history in X number of pages. But it didn't. So... 
you know, I think we may have given a little more space to stories that maybe we sentimentally were attached to. I mean, we probably didn't need to give as much space to Thug Thatcher as we did. Right? <laughs> although, 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 again, I did get to make up that Thug Thatcher's given name was Thelonious, you know, which, <laughs> which I think Walt Simonson, I think, you know, because... I was hanging around the office and Walt would often come in and I told him I was joking with him about, oh yeah, we're doing Thug Thatcher and I gave him a name, Thelonious, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. I think that's what inspired Walt to even bring Thug Thatcher back in his Thor run. Just, oh, that's funny. Just, just sitting around and joking about the character. These are good uh, yeah, descriptive like, names, yeah. Yeah, it's just a thing. And it's like an homage to Thelonious Monk, of course. You know, it was... So Peter and I had a lot of fun. I got to... You know, it's when I got to be a very good friends with Peter, who's, you know, just like an amazing person. This is one of, the, of course, the funny things about working in comics. Altogether, it's the classic thing. You're sitting in a diner. Hey, when you're working in comics, especially as a freelancer, you get to know where the diners are, where they won't throw you out after an hour. Mm-hmm. You get to know where you can sit for three hours and, and actually... But you find yourself sitting in a restaurant you know, plotting and you know, talking about plotting to kill people or blow stuff up or destroy the world and you get funny looks from the tables around you. So Peter and I would have these long conversations about, you know, would Loki do this? And when he when Loki was trapped as a tree and he was able to, there's some story where Loki made a tree cry, you know, while Peter and I liked having an ongoing series to work on, we certainly were not looking to pad it out. So the Crimson Beetle, or whatever the character's name was, was one of Ant-Man's earliest villains, but he is kind of silly by 1980s standards. So how do we deal with a character like that? And, you know, yeah, it was just, it was just a lot of fun. And Peter, Peter and I always had a, had a good time, just kind of... There are worse things than getting paid to like you know iron out the wrinkles in Marvel history you know yeah that sounds like fun that sounds like fun work so then before Jim Shooter left to be replaced by Tom DeFalco as editor-in-chief you worked on some 1986 1987 New Universe titles as a scripter difficult I was the writer of Cyforce it was fun working with Mark Teixeira who was great he really even then just brought wonderful visual power and drama to Cyforce there were numerous reasons where there were would be different rewrites or revisions, mm-hmm. but it was good. I enjoyed it because although it was in the new universe, it could still be taken seriously. You know, say Dazzler, they got a hard time being taken seriously, no matter how much gravitas we tried to instill it with. But Cyforce was a good sort of hybrid, in a way, almost of Spider-Man and Darkhawk, which I later go to do. It was, it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was already in my 30s at that point, so I wasn't a teenager, but I felt immature enough to still be in touch with my teenage side. Teenage side, yeah. So it was fun. I, you know, there were I had some issues with some editorial decisions, but I was glad to have the work. And I see. You know, I like those characters. And I say Tex really made it a pleasure. I did an issue, I think, with Bob Hall, who's become a good friend. Yeah. Uh, you may be seeing a project from him and me somewhere down the line. Oh, cool. Yeah, I like Bob Hall. Uh, yeah, again, I don't, uh, I don't know if I have any rollicking stories, but it felt like it was good, solid. You know, it was the new universe, but you know, we tried to give it the best of Marvel, which was angst-laced adventures of teenagers who were also, who, despite all their problems and all their being hunted, right, were still having fun. Because I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think that's the essence. If you drill down in Marvel. Overall, I mean, starting with Spider-Man, but going out to almost all the characters, 
at some level, it's fun to be this character. At some level, you're still the person web swinging across New York or flying across country or lifting a mountain. I mean, right. at some point, that's fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know, living, uh, no living matter, vicariously through the writing, for sure. Yeah, no matter what else may be going on and who you're in love with, who hates you, or who you're indebted to that's dying, or who's trying to kill you, you know, it's still fun to be a Marvel character, you know, and, and yeah. I think we tried to maintain all those kind of Marvel touchstones in Cyforce. Yeah. So when you were doing this, was this written in like Marvel style of plotting, then dialoguing, or was it like you wrote a whole script out? Most of the comics I wrote at Marvel were done Marvel style. Marvel style, okay. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, that had evolved. I guess that got its name with Stan and Jack did, where either they'd have a very brief plot conference or a, or a half-page description, or Jack would plot it himself, and Stan would then change the story with his dialogue. You know, by, by the time I got there, it had evolved where writers would write a reasonably detailed description, just not the dialogue. You know, you'd have what you'd call almost a story synopsis. It's, you know, you'd say the story, it opens with this on the splash page. We tried to write the plots almost as if you were sitting telling the story to a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort, of, you sort of imagine that the artist was that friend you're sitting across a diner table from and saying this happens and that happens so and then it got certain writers would write tons of detail others would write less but it was rarely page one something happens to sue you know to sue storm page two the fantastic four look for page three the 15 they fight dr do i mean it was never you know it was never that it was marvel style a marvel method plot first but but the plot's almost always had a certain level of detail to them, just not all the dialogue. Right, right. Now, what was your impression of the New Universe stories, and why did it not last? That's a tough one. I mean, I think in retrospect, which is, I guess, the only way you can really analyze it, it. It seemed odd then, and it seems, right, I get the idea Mm -hmm. that to celebrate Marvel's 25th anniversary, you would want to come up with something that in the Marvel tradition is new and status quo shattering. Right. But the fact is you can't do that on demand or on command. And so it did and does seem, although I understand the reasoning behind it, that you would celebrate Marvel's 25th anniversary by doing something not involved with any of Marvel's characters. Right, right. Marvel's well-known characters. Because, I mean, I think if you read the stories... It's like a lot of things that get pilloried in history, you know. I mean, I mean, certainly to jump ahead a decade or so, uh-huh. a couple of decades, the idea that the Clone Saga stories are now being repackaged in a hundred different formats, <laughs> uh, including omnibuses, is, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather at the time, and we can talk about that more mm-hmm. later or next time. But yeah, I think there were many good people working on those books, including Archie Goodwin and Tom DeFalco and right. uh, Mark Texera, and the list goes on. John Romita Jr., Shooter himself. The Star Brand books were very clever and very uh, innovative. I just think got off on the wrong track. I think there was no one character that caught people's imaginations. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was kind of dystopian, right? I mean, it was kind of a dystopian... It ended up that way for numerous reasons. It didn't... Even the most, quote-unquote, realistic, you know, superhero comic, knowing what we know of human nature, 
that's sort of the Watchman fallacy. Sort of people took the brilliance of Watchman and took it as kind of a there you go as not just a an outlier, but as like an example, you know, to, as a template. So it's like, yes, if people got superpowers, they probably would act like the people in Watchmen. You know, people right. are selfish. Even the most idealistic people often act out of selfish motives, or they screw up, they hurt other people, or blow stuff up inadvertently. So I guess when the new universe started heading in that direction, and the rule, at least in the beginning, of course, that ended up being violated after Jim was gone. You know, the idea was no aliens, no magic. No subsea secret mm. races. Mm. So there's some limits yeah. there. I think it was heading in that sort of dystopic yeah. way. And then they ended up doing that stuff with the draft and the war. I was gone from the books by that point. Again, I get why they did that. I never thought that was a great idea. It was sort of fulfilled certain emotional catharsis needed by people because of various things going on at Marvel, you know, that you mm-hmm. can leave it to the lines and figure out. I think, say, if Starbrand or Cyforce, if any of them had caught on in a big way, I mean, the same thing happened with the Ultimate Marvel Universe, Yeah, where I think everybody thought, and it made perfect sense, that that would become the mainstream comic book Marvel Universe, but it didn't, mm-hmm. you know. It, I think there's something so powerful about those characters that Stan, Jack, and Steve came up with and Larry came up with. You know, I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling even beyond that, that Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman are still, you know... The central characters, yeah. Right? I mean, if you said to a kid in 1947, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, they know what you... That's kind of wild that those characters despite the thousands of other characters that both companies have come up with, that the ones that came from that first primal explosion of creativity at both those companies are still have outlasted in the public consciousness. Any other character, just, I think, because they were first. Yeah, that's true. Now, when DeFalco became editor-in-chief in 87, did you feel like, okay, I'm familiar with his style? Was it a pretty smooth transition from Jim Shooters? And, and did their managerial style, were they different? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he, he, he chortled. Yes. Luckily for me, I had gone freelance in late 84. I felt I was ancient. I was 30 years old. I couldn't imagine being older than that. And I really felt I needed to take some risks in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I went freelance. But I had a standing offer from both Shooter and DeFalco that any time I wanted to come back on staff, I could. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Beats a poke in the eye with a sharp stick, you know. Huh. Uh, and so I eventually did that a couple of years into Tom's reign. You know, being a freelancer has its ups and downs, as perhaps you know. You know, the kind of, in a sense, you're never on duty. And in a sense, you're always on duty. If your kid needs to do something, then you can go do it. But you might be up till four in the morning making up the lost time that whatever that cool thing you did with your kid was, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. Shooter for whatever reasons, had become very hands-on as an editor-in-chief. He, you've read or your listeners can read the various articles about things going on, and there was sort of, there was a lot of conflict, you know, mm-hmm. at Marvel between Jim and the editors, between Jim and the executives. You know, you can read his blog. He's got his own point of view on the story. I was actually freelancing at that point, so I was not in the office day to day. So I, there's a lot of stuff that I think that I'm to this day not really aware of. DeFalco was brought in. I think Tom 
thought that if they did fire Jim, they'd fire him too because he was Jim's right-hand man. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They brought him in as chief. Yeah. Look, Tom was a terrific manager. He understood the characters. He knew the company. And I think he also knew that people needed more freedom than they'd had, that they needed the freedom to experiment and make mistakes. Tom was as big a Spider-Man traditionalist as you can get. And yet it was under his reign that Todd McFarlane came in with, you know, that radically different look and the different mm-hmm. look. For the webbing, I think Tom understood that sometimes you can, even if you know you're right, you still have to let people do what they're going to do in order to keep morale up and to just sort of keep the creative electricity going. So I think that was a big kind of reaction Hmm. to the very regimented way things had been. And Tom just had a very different style. Tom, I think, is one of the great geniuses of the comics industry of the... Mm -hmm of recent years you know and again not that I've agreed with every decision Tom made regarding me or regarding his reign but overall he was uh, overall was good more than good overall yeah right right he was a guy you know who you really wanted to please and do stuff for because you know again he's human but you always felt that what he was doing was for the sake of the characters and, and of the ultimate health of the medium and the company and the characters. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Could he have done anything that would have stopped the migration of the top artists there over to Image? Or was that just inevitable? That was inevitable. I think that, I think, again, history and the marketplace came together where that generation of creators looked at history, you know. I mean, they looked at comics history. They looked at Siegel and Schuster. They looked at Jack Kirby. You know, they looked at their childhood idols and the guys who built the business. And they even looked at their immediate predecessors, right? And then Marvel gave them the means. And, you know, really, Paul Levitz at DC and Jim Shooter at Marvel pushed for these royalty programs. Mm -hmm. So these guys now had a lot of money. Right. But they were smart enough to figure out, you know, we're hot now, but we're not always going to be hot. Yeah, I see. We need to build something that's ours. So those incentive plans in the 80s actually was one of these ingredients that actually caused this image revolution. That's interesting. Totally financed it, yeah. Because the generation before that had bought cool stuff for themselves and their families, you know, which you can't fault them for. You know, they bought nice homes and they bought stuff for their and their kids and their wives. And the image guys did that too, but I think it was largely McFarland and to some degree Rob. That's my kind of view of it as an outsider. Yeah, Todd McFarland's not working for anybody. Todd McFarland's a born entrepreneur and very smart. I think they had just seen too much of history and seen people who were riding high one day who the next year were, you know, calling up some 12-year-old begging for work and they didn't want to be guys doing that, you know. Right. No, that's right. So now let's talk a little bit about in 1990, a lot of things start off in Marvel. You really kind of get ingrained back into Marvel pretty deep at this point. You're editing New Warriors, Spider-Man, Moon Knight from, well, 90 to 95, but Spidey started in 91. And these were kind of street-level vigilante-type characters. Is that a particular knack you have for that type of content? Do you like that more than cosmic stories, for example? It's funny, because you guys know all about comics, so this is a funny question. Basically, I had that standing offer from Shooter and then from DeFalco, you know, if you want to come back, we'll be glad to have you back. So I had been freelancing for, I think, five years for various 
personal things going on in my life for me to have a day job again. So I came back. So I said, Tom, I'd like to come back. And the books that were available then were Moon Knight, Alpha Flight, Cloak and Dagger. Right. I think because Carl Potts, I think maybe was promoted to be the Epic Comics. Oh, okay. Uh huh. The Epic Comics. So I took over his books, and then New Warriors was a book they wanted to start, and there might have been there were probably one or two others that I'm forgetting, and a bunch of graphic novels. So that was in mid '89, actually. So I guess a lot of those titles didn't hit the stand. So yeah, uh, it's funny because when I went freelance in late '84, I said to myself, "I'm taking a chance here. I feel I have to," but even if I do go back on staff, now that they've instituted editor's royalties, I'll never see those Spider-Man books again. That'll just mm. never happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's absolutely no way. So I came back and I got sort of these low-selling, quirky books. Like uh, Alpha Flight. Alpha Flight, Moon Knight, Cloak and Dagger, uh, uh-huh. New Warriors, which with New Warriors was a joke. You know, before I put Fabian and, and Bagley on it, the concept of New Warriors was kind of, it was kind of like Dazzler for the 90s. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> so when they premiered in those two Thor issues, they were kind of a joke kind of team. There was an in-house gag for New Warriors, and the tagline was, Marvel Comics, if you didn't buy them, we couldn't print them. Huh. You know, specifically referring to the New Warriors. So I had this, this line of titles that I thought all those books needed changes, and I thought there was nothing to lose. And I had just gone uh, through a divorce, so I was pissed off in general. So I really became the nightmare overbearing editor and pretty much imposed my personality on all those books because I thought they really all needed a shot in the arm. Nice. Okay. You know what? That's how you're an editor. That's what you do. You do that thing about you hire the best people and let them go. Total bullshit. So anyway... (laughs) It's like Bender playing God in that Futurama episode. If you do your job right, uh, nobody will know you've done anything. Again, I'm being facetious to make a point, but the in this case, I just said, these books aren't selling much. And they're all on the verge of cancellation. Let's shake them up. So funny that you asked me that about the Spider-Man book. So I took in mm-hmm. a way the exact opposite approach with those books. Right. Because I, I just felt, who gives a shit what happens to Cloak and Dagger, Moon Knight, and Alpha Flight? I mean, even if I totally fuck up royalty, who's going to know? <laughs> right, and that's actually kind of right. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is the, which is the best attitude to go in. That's where you yeah, go. it is. You know, I looked at Moon Knight and I said, "Wow, his guy, he's a Jew who'll do anything for money." <laughs> wow, wow, that's pretty intense. You know, he's like he's got eleven different origins, even yeah. though the people who invented him and I believe Doug Mensch really meant well by making him Jewish and doing all he did with him. So I, I don't impute any ill will on the people who worked on it before. Uh-huh. But I'm looking at that and I'm going, here's a Jew who'll do anything for money. And I have this deep Jewish background. What the fuck do I do with this series? <laughs> so that's when I said about the trial of Mark Spector. I said, well, somehow there's got to be a reckoning. you know, Even if he's like the world's nicest mercenary, mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. he killed somebody Somewhere he killed an innocent. Somewhere bad shit happened. Right. So right. that's where I came up with the trial of, of Mark Spector, you know. And I like it. I don't know if Chuck liked it or not, but he played along and he, and uh-huh. he did it. Did a good job on it. And yeah, is that a manifestation of Jewish guilt? I guess I may. You know, it's probably autobiographical by me. <laughs> Chuck, you know, uh-huh. it, really, it, it, it really disturbed me, you know, I mean, that, look, this often happens. How many times have we seen like comics trying to, or even or movies too, trying to kind of do something progressive 
mm-hmm. you know, and inclusive, and it ends up just reinforcing the worst cliches about whatever ethnic or racial group or religious group they're dealing with. Sure, know, sure. No, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, Alpha Flight, I didn't know what to do with. You know, again, that's maybe a thing they should have canceled if the burn left it. Anyway, so I did Cloak and Dagger. That's when I put Gerber on Cloak and Dagger. You know, I ended up putting Fabian and Bagley on New Warriors and they turned out to be this team that you know I'd worked with Bagley before on some other projects so I knew he and I did that what if together what if Spider-Man's living costume had yeah this. I like that uh, story. And, oh, I love that oh, what and, if, yeah uh, me too thank you and he was also he was the artist on oh what was that outer space commando thing that I was editing because I inherited that from Carl also um, mm. Oh, uh, Strike Force Moratori. He was the artist on Strike Force Moratori, and we, you know, one thing in any efficiency we gain with the internet, one thing we've lost is, you know, long telephone calls like this, you know? Yeah, which I would have. I mean, I mean, part of your job as an editor at Marvel, and I'm sure everywhere, was to spend long conversations with artists and writers who needed such, you know, that kind of thing. You, you, mm-hmm. you play whatever, and very often you get to know their families because you'd call, and you, know, you get their wife or their kid, and you'd have a long <laughs> conversation. So, I mean, so I, I, I knew Bagley pretty well. He became a good friend. Fabian, I knew from the office, and Fabian was very ambitious and very talented, had a million ideas, which mm-hmm. I guess the good and bad news of Fabian was that you had to try to figure out which were the good ideas and which were the bad ideas. You know. mm-hmm. but, I love the work you did on uh, New Warriors. I mean, I, I read every issue as it came out. I couldn't wait for the next month. I mean, I loved it. Those guys were great to work with, but we I, I would say, and you know, I mean, in a good way, that Fabian and I had a lot of shouting matches over plots where I would, he'd want to do some crazy thing, and I go, "That's great," you know, or he'd think what I did would want to do would be much too conservative or careful, and I think what he would want to do would be too reckless and and made no sense in the in the well, yeah, but it worked out. It was without those, especially those first twenty five issues were just wonderful. So thank you. Yeah, I, I'm very proud of those. Again, I'm I'm not sure I've answered your question, but that was, no, yeah, that was, but yeah, that was sort of again. I felt like. New Warriors was another book. You had nothing to lose. You know, everybody expected it to fail. So if it failed, no one would be surprised. And yeah. this, everybody, A, everybody would be pleasantly surprised by it. B, it looks good on your resume, too. Yeah. But those first 26 issues were magic, though. Yeah. I, I do, yeah. I do feel that way. In 1991, then you started editing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man. So the artist that was first on when you kind of got re-signed back to Spider-Man was Eric Larson. How was working with him? How were those pages? Eric is great. Professional, imaginative. Uh-huh. You know, one thing I found about uh, the Image guys, including Todd, Eric, especially, was that they didn't seem to take things personally. You know, they were careful to not burn bridges, which was very interesting. They they went out to compete with Marvel, but look, except for Todd, they've all been back working for Marvel. Mm-hmm. They were adult enough to know that they didn't want to and need to burn bridges. So Eric, I mean, he was good. He was fast. He was imaginative. Mm-hmm work was full of energy mm-hmm. he knew uh, how to write he knew how to write exactly you know he built yeah, he could he can pace uh, a story yeah yeah so then when he left to co-create image comics were you the one that recommended mark bagley to come on to spider-man after that i think bagley would have killed me if i hadn't hired him to do spider-man that was uh-huh. i think there were those death threats from bagley that, uh, <laughs> that, that were highly i'm just kidding mark you know but not that much <laughs> um, yeah, well, Bagley had done, you know, I'd seen his Spider-Man, I think. Right. He, and you've done know, New Warriors uh, already by then. Done New Warriors, done Spider-Man. He, he and I had done the What If. I think he'd done some fill-in Spidey stories for Salicrop. It was, I think we talked about it a lot. I knew that, that he wanted it. And, and 
he was a workhorse. Not only was he good, but he could draw a lot of pages. Yeah, and he was doing because he was doing Spidey and New Warriors at the same time for some of that. And yeah. you guys even did a crossover between the two books yeah. as far as New Warriors and Spidey. And so, how how was coordinating that? Well, it was easy because it was all coming out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> was that your idea to cross them over? You mean the round robin story? Yeah. That was a story that I had come up with for Moon Knight. Uh huh. I think I was even, maybe I'd even pitched it as a miniseries that I would write. I forget, you know, and again, it's all kind of vague. Yeah. But at a certain point, you know, we were doing the bi-weeklies, Spider-Man had the bi-weeklies. And right. I think David needed a break. So I gave my outline for that to Al Milgram to write, who's Al's a, you know, a terrific writer, besides mm-hmm. being a great pencil and inker. So Al, mm-hmm. it's always fun to do it in your own office. I mean, you may have noticed that when I wrote Dark Hawk, I had Spider-Man, the guest starring quite a bit. In- yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, you had Dark Hawk and Moon Knight, all kind of, they're all hanging out together, these guys. And also we did a miniseries a few years later, the uh, Spider-Man Friends and Enemies. Uh, yeah. You know, when I came back on staff, I found one reason I'd gone freelance in the in 84 was I had sort of gotten books coming out regularly and I thought they were good. But in a way, I, I had found people I trusted and could let them go. So it, I was a little bored, you know, so aside from wanting to kind of establish my own voice more as a writer, mm-hmm. I was also a, a little bored. So I'd found ways when I came back on staff in 89 to make it more interesting for myself. Hard to describe exactly what, because obviously I couldn't as I had said facetiously before, you know, yes, there were some books that I imposed my will on. I just said, this is what we're doing. But I couldn't and didn't want to do that, especially with the Spidey books, if I didn't have to. I mean, that became complicated as the Spider line grew to like 18 monthly titles. But I found ways to keep it more interesting for myself. And so coming back to Spidey, I think I understood better who the character was. I understood the history of the character in depth. You know, one thing I'd done a lot of, you know, with the Marvel saga and just with writing a lot of different characters was really immersing myself in the history in a way that I maybe hadn't before and writing all those what ifs. Mm-hmm. Again, I've lost track of the question. Uh, <laughs> but you're creating great context, which we love. Another thing, the creation of Carnage, right? The whole Carnage yeah. saga. Was that character directed by you to them or did that come from more writing? How did Carnage come about? The idea for it started when Salak Rupp was still editing the Spider-Man books. Uh, again, I'm sure I probably once knew more of the detail. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. Venom was incredibly popular. Right. So to do something that was a, a riff on Venom but wasn't exactly the same character became Carnage. So I don't know if it was uh, David or Jim or a combination of the two of them, but somehow the idea became, well, what if we gave a Venom-like suit to the Joker? I guess who was that level of crazy? Who was that chaotic and destructive and nihilistic mm-hmm. in, in his view of life? That was mostly in place by the time mm-hmm. I took the books back over. So that was David and I guess Eric and, of course, Mark really did the mm-hmm. finishing mark bailey did the finishing touches on the visual oh i see uh, so that so, da- so so david was already play- toying with the idea of this character before and then eric had kind of fleshing out a little bit of it and mark kind of finalized that i see what you're saying right and the, and the name actually was eric fine who was my assistant at the time came up with the name of carnage of cletus cassidy oh of the of the actual carnage uh, character uh, uh, yeah no, cletus cassidy was the- already, but the name carnage and you know obviously i approved it and David McElhinney approved it. And this has been super informative on the life and times of Danny Fingeroth. Stay tuned for next episode where we conclude our discussion by finalizing the overview of his comics career, as well as discussing the different books he's written, both on comics history and the superhero genre. 
Stay tuned.